Good morning. The word of God from Song of Solomon 4, 9 through 16. You have captivated my heart, my sister, my bride. You have captivated my heart with one glance of your eyes, with one jewel of your necklace. How beautiful is your love, my sister, my bride. How much better is your love than wine and the fragrance of your oils than any spice. Your lips drip nectar, my bride. Honey and milk are under your tongue. The fragrance of your garments is like the fragrance of Lebanon. A garden locked is my sister, my bride. A spring locked, a fountain sealed. Your shoots are an orchard of pomegranates with all choicest fruits. Henna with nard, nard and saffron, calamus and cinnamon, with all trees of frankincense, myrrh and aloes, with all choices spices. A garden fountain, a well of living water, and flowing streams from Lebanon. Awake, O north wind, and come, O south wind. Blow upon my garden, let its spices flow. This is God's word given for our good. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. Thank you. Please remain standing um, as we come in prayer and ask the Lord to illumine the scriptures. We also um, just recognize that we come to hear from his word, but our hearts are filled with uh, burdens. And I, I want to spend a little extra time in prayer together as a family. So please um, pray with me. Heavenly Father, we really do acknowledge that those words are um, given for our good. And we know you to be a God who is for us and for our good. We know you to be sovereign and kind and merciful. But we also don't always know what to make of evil in this world and its brokenness and how it touches us. And it is confusing, Lord. We are confused. Lord, would you um, pour out your kindness to Denver East High School, a grieving school where kids shouldn't shoot people that is not the world as you designed it to be, and yet here we are lifting up all those families. I pray for our families. All, we have kids, my own children, on campus at East High School. I think also of the Bergs, Natasha, the Flints, Ella, Oliver, Lord, um, Jack. They were all there, Micah and Ruth, and... Um, countless other families. We have families here who will be sending their kids to Denver East, and uh, it's all so confusing. And so we just uh, pray, Lord, for your mercy. We pray for healing. We pray for broken hearts. We pray, Lord, that your spirit would pour out in a new, fresh way 
that this would not be the prayer that we would have to utter ever again. I do thank you, Lord, that in this sad time, you have shown us that indeed there are Christians at East who are praying. Lord, if we could play any small role in that healing, I pray that you would show us our role. Lord, your, um, your word is comforting and afflicting all at the same time. We take all of it because we want you. And so, Lord, by your spirit, illumine your scriptures, soften our hearts, teach us to war against these idols that possess us. We pray for strength. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. And you may be seated. Thank you for praying with me. Well, good morning. Uh, If you are new with us, we're really glad that you're here. My name is Ronnie. I'm the senior pastor here. We are continuing this morning in this... uh, a topical sermon series, which is not like our practice. We're not usually doing topical sermon series, but we are during the season of Lent, and it is on the seven deadly sins, and today you get two for one. Congratulations. Uh, There's kind of two reasons for that. First, you know, practical. There's only six weeks in Lent, and got to get them all all seven in, Uh, but really the main reason is that the deadly sin of lust and gluttony have some really stark parallels. Both of them are sins of the body. Uh, Both of them are warm-hearted sins, quite frankly. And by that, they feel less, I don't know, like less toxic. You know, like these sins don't usually receive the ire of some of the other ones, like pride or envy. Like when you see a prideful or envious person, no one likes that guy right? Uh, But lust and gluttony, uh, they usually begin sincerely with just simple longing for connection and communion and warmth. But unfortunately, these warm-hearted sins can turn cold quickly. And we all know this because of our shame. Today's going to be hard, um, Both of these topics deal with our bodies, and quite frankly, we are not comfortable in our bodies. And we haven't been for a very long time. The scriptures tell us that food and sex and and the pleasure that we seek from these things were given to us by God himself. We see this in the Garden of Eden, perhaps the most uh, beautiful, or some of the most beautiful verses in the whole Bible are, are, are when Adam and Eve were, were told that they were naked and unashamed. God gave Adam and Eve physical bodies, and so food and, and pleasure are inescapable parts of who we are. And our passage that we heard from the Song of Solomon was very carefully selected because in just one passage, we see the beauty and goodness 
and, and power of God's provision through sensual delight and food, and both of them are together. You know, the passage is a, is a portion of a poem of a groom to his bride. And the only way this groom can describe the delight that he has in her body is to make an analogy to food, <laughs> right? Is it like verse 10, how much better is your love than wine and the fragrance of your oils than any spice? Verse 11, your lips drip nectar, my bride. Honey and milk are under your tongue. Your shoots are an orchard of pomegranates. I used that one just yesterday. <laughs> with the choicest fruits, henna with nard and saffron and calamus and cinnamon. These descriptions will, will make you blush if you dwell on them too much. But there's this parallel delight between food and sexual pleasure. And so one is used to help us understand the beauty of the other. And these two delights, these two parts of our basic humanity are God-given and powerful. And so what happened once Adam and Eve rebelled and betrayed and they rebelled from God, those basic parts of our humanity have absolutely wrecked us. Because of their sin, of Adam and Eve's sin, every other relationship is broken. Our relationship with God, our relationship with one another, our relationship with ourselves, our own bodies, our relationship like with the earth, the created order. In every direction, we feel so much shame. And so we live with these God-given desires, but they are disordered. You know, I've, I've mentioned this concept in nearly every sermon uh, in the series, but ordering our disordered desires is a fundamental fight against fake gods, against these false gods that we're tempted to worship. So we've talked about like the hierarchy, right, of the human heart. There are things that we ought to love but they all have to be in the right order. And we, when we cling to some above other more important things, then our heart gets disordered. We, we love things either too much or too little. And when we love and trust in anything more than we love and trust in God, chaos erupts. And that's what's happening when we love something above God, that thing becomes a replacement God, an idol. G.K. Chesterton, he says, speaking of this replacement God, he says, when a man knocks on the door of a brothel, he is looking for God. Lust, a replacement God. Frederick Beekner, he, he made the case that a glutton is someone who raids the refrigerator looking for a cure to spiritual malnutrition. Gluttony, a replacement God. And Alexander Schmiemann, who I love, he sums it all up. He says, man is a hungry being, but he is hungry for God. All desires are finally a desire for him. And without him, no desire will ever be filled or will ever be enough. 
And so lust and gluttony are, are things that we must think about together. And we've got to search the scriptures. And, and listen, I recognize that there are some challenges here. Both the messaging from inside the church and outside uh, have really done us a disservice, right? I mean, think about gluttony. I mean, when's the last time you heard a sermon on gluttony? Usually, the most we say about this topic is, there are donuts in the fellowship hall, don't eat too many. (laughs) And it's interesting, because it's only with respect to food that outside of the church, our culture will ever even dare to use biblical language, right? Like, think about this. If someone says to you, I was bad today, what do you think they're suggesting? That they robbed a bank? That they lied to everyone that they know? that they pushed over some elderly person? No, they probably had too many carbs, right? Right? We only, the culture only uses biblical moral, moral language with regard to food. And so the word sinful or temptation, decadence, is always used in reference to the dessert menu. And it makes it trite. Our culture doesn't even have language for sin for the other six deadly sins, but we do for food. I've literally seen dessert menus that follow the seven deadly sins to order the the kinds of desserts they're offering. It's trite. And so both inside and outside the church, it's hard to think about gluttony as a sin against God, at least not in any serious sense. I mean, it might be a sin against your ideal body body, body shape, But it's not a sin against the creator of the universe, or is it? But let me tell you guys, this is relevant. Our country is a leader in the world in both obesity and eating disorders. And none of this, none of this is about calorie counting. It is a poverty of the soul. And not gluttony only, lust You know, the church has blown it. We've either been too prudish, and prudishness is a disordered desire, by the way, or we're fear-based, like you don't want chlamydia, do you? Right? Or, perhaps worst of all, blaming women when men can't practice self-control Sisters, like, look at me right now. Look at me. I am so, so sorry that the church has caused you so much harm on pinning this on you. We're wrong. I'm so sorry. We've been so unhelpful and sinful even. And our culture outside of the church, which, which has promised us freedom, right? Sexual liberation. Our culture hasn't helped either. When we ask, what is sex after all? What is it? There's kind of two ways that we answer this. On one side answers the question in sort of mystical terms, like a, like a path to enlightenment, as if sexual intimacy is required for a person to be fully realized or to be spiritually whole. Some use that answer sometimes. Other times, 
they answer it just by saying it's an evolutionary urge, right? It's an itch. And, and when you have an itch, you just scratch. Nothing more, nothing less. And, and, and this Puritan culture just needs to get off our back, right? What's the big deal, they would say. What's the big deal? The World Health Organization says one in three women have been abused. What's the big deal? You know, that response reminds me of C.S. Lewis in his Chronicles of Narnia when uh, Eustace is having this conversation with Aslan. Uh, he's speaking of the stars in the sky, and he says to Aslan, he says, in my world, stars are just huge balls of flaming gas. And Aslan responds, oh, my son, even in your world, that." Even in your world, that is not what stars are. That's just what they're made of. <laughs> Even in our world, sex is much more than an urge. For both gluttony and lust, we, we need help. Both inside the church, outside the church, we are providing no help for anyone. We've blown it. And I'm not... I'm not saying I can fix all of that today, but maybe, maybe we can just start the journey of a little bit of healing, a little bit of reordering our loves as we walk with Jesus. That's, that's my aim. So for the rest of this sermon, for you note takers, I'm just going to work through three things. I'm going to start with the problem of gluttony and then the problem of lust, and I'll conclude with solutions to both. Let's start with the problem of gluttony. So there's this passage in 1 Corinthians chapter 6. And the Apostle Paul, he's speaking into the current lives of these young Christians who are living in Corinth. And if you know much about it, Corinth is this city where people uh, believed that these primitive cravings, these primitive appetites, and the pleasures that they bring were perfectly fine to absolutely indulge in because they, because these young Christians saw, did not see a relationship between the body and the soul. And, and so I want you to notice and listen for, um, notice that this craving for food and for sexual desire, so food and sexual desire, they're spoken about together in this passage. Listen, this is 1 Corinthians 6, chapter 12, excuse me, verse 12. Paul says, all things are lawful for me, but not all things are helpful. All things are lawful for me, but I will not be dominated by anything. Food is meant for the stomach and the stomach for food. And God will destroy both one and the other. The body is meant for sexual immorality. Notice he moves from food to sexual immorality. But for the Lord, the Lord, and, and, but for the Lord... And the Lord for the body. And God, raised the Lord, and God raised the Lord and will also raise us up by his power. Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? And then he concludes in verse 19. He says, you are not your own, for you were bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. So Paul had been teaching them for like chapters that, that Jesus has forgiven them, that he loves them and he seals them, and that Jesus can forgive anything, and that this forgiveness is intended to set them free. 
But now these young Christians, because of this assurance, they were tempted to relate to food and sex in any way that they wanted. And Paul is saying, if they do that, they are inviting a new master to dominate them. While these pleasures may appear to be a form of freedom or expression, they are inviting deep slavery upon themselves. These cravings were, were false loves moving to the very top of their hierarchy. They're disordered loves. Yes, they were free from the law to eat and drink anything, but they were wrong to think that what they did with their body, what they did with their stomachs, did not touch their soul. Listen closely. Your, your body and your soul are not the same things, but they are inseparable. Right? right? C.S. Lewis is famous for saying, you don't have a soul, you are a soul. And, the, and he could have said the opposite. You don't have a body, you are are a body. These two are inextricably and intimately, intimately intertwined. And so what we do with our bodies can significantly determine who owns our souls. So how we relate to food and drink is a massive moral question. So Rebecca DeYoung in her book, Glittering Vices, you know, I've been quoting her a lot. She's been like my primary conversation partner, um, she gives this acronym to help us um, evaluate all, all the different aspects of gluttony. And so she gives us this, because you should know that gluttony is way more than just eating a lot of food. This is an issue of the soul. And so she gives us this acronym, FRESH, F-R-E-S-H, F, fastidiously, ravenously, excessively, sumptuously, hastily. Now, of those five words, only one of them deals with the amount of food we eat, right? And that's excessively. Let me just quickly run through them. Ravenously. Uh, a ravenous eater is a person who eats as if they were starving, although they are not. They eat quickly because they want a lot of pleasure, right? Because sharing is hard. They want the big piece, Right? They look at the, how the pizza's sliced up. They want the big piece, and they're afraid that someone will take some of that opportunity of pleasure. Sumptuously, this is the person who keeps eating, although they feel full, but they enjoy that feeling of fullness. Excessively, right? That's just disrespecting your, one's body by eating beyond the limits of what it needs. It's obvious. Hastily. This is the person who always has food on their mind, if even to just avoid it. This is the person who's always first in line. Uh, when others arrive to the table, they've already finished all of their food uh, before anyone's ever even sat down. And they do this because the meal is just about food. It's not about communion with others. And so they're ready to leave, leave when everyone sits down, right? Now, eating fastidiously, this is the one I really had to get my brain around, but as I studied it, it's extremely Denver in its concern. Eating fastidiously is to be very concerned with accuracy and detail. Like, foodies don't just want food. 
we want it to be interesting. You can't just have a beer. It's got to be craft. Our food has to be farm-to-table, free-range, hormone-free, gluten-free, and my friend taught me this one, biodynamic, which literally means life-changing. Biodynamic is food that is planted and harvested on a very specific piece of dirt, holy perhaps, watered only from certain sources, sunlight given to it only in certain times of the year. And so the food is supposed to have spiritual qualities of sorts. And you could even have a religious experience while eating it. And all of this is not just about health or even allergies, which we care very much about. This is about delicacy, a gluttony of delicacy, a hyper-concern for the detail of our food so that our food tells us who we are. This isn't new to us, of course. C.S. Lewis, he writes about this in the screw tape letters, which I keep bringing up. I spoke about this last week. It's, um, if, if you don't know this work, if you're new, this is a, a book. It's really a collection of correspondences between a senior devil. It's fictional, of course. A senior devil writing to his protege, his nephew, who's a younger devil. And this younger one is learning how to win human souls and to keep them so that these devils can, and demons can feed on them forever and eternity. And so listen to Uncle Screwtape, the senior devil. Listen to his description of this one person. He, wrote, he says, She is a positive terror to the hostess and the servants alike. She is always turning from what has been offered to her just to say, Please, please, all I want is a cup of tea, weak but not too weak, and a teeny bit of really crisp toast. Do you see? Because what she wants is smaller and less costly than what has been offered before her, she never recognizes it as gluttony. It is her determination to get what she wants, however troublesome it might be to others. And the real value of this quite unobtrusive work on this old woman can be gauged by the way in which her belly dominates her whole life. The woman is, is what can be called an all I want state of mind. She is in a all I want, all I want is state of mind. In other words, all I want is what matters. Remember, how we treat the body can dominate the soul. That's what Paul is after in 1 Corinthians 6. The problem is not just portion control or discipline or counting carbs, the real question for us, spiritually, is where is my love directed? How am I asking my food, either eating too much or too little, fancy or simple, how am I asking my food to give me something or to do something for me so that I won't need Jesus? Does that sound too dramatic? Does that sound abstract? Here are some ways that I actually see this. First, we make food our refuge. We obsess over food by either eating too much or too little. 
So like on one hand, food is a comfort, right? In, a fallen, in the fallen world in which we live, it's painful. And so we run into the arms of our food when we're feeling it, when we're lonely and stressed, insecure, when we're thinking about our failures. Food is profoundly comforting in that moment. Or, or maybe it's not that, but... Uh, the other side of that, sometimes we feel food's refuge by controlling it. We eat too little, and if we do, we think it promises us a solution. We think by eating too little, there is a promise of a beautiful body on the other side. And a beautiful body can open all the doors of our deepest desires and hopes. But in either case, There is a refuge of comfort, a refuge of control over our food. Because if we handle our problems, if we handle them, then we won't need to depend on Jesus too much. Because we got this. And listen closely. What poses as a refuge ironically ends up giving you shame and bondage. The verdict of the bathroom scale and the full-length mirror never brings refuge. It's a slave master. And the second thing we do with food is we, we make it our moral righteousness. The moral pride of the healthy eater creates snobbery, right? It's a little bit embarrassing to be seen at McDonald's. All right? I very much understand who joins me at the counter at Waffle House. It's a, it's a sort of judgmental superiority that we get by looking at those who are in the donut line. All right? Because you're not like those other people. You're enlightened enough to know and enlightened enough to like foods that are green. And this is an easy kind of righteousness because it doesn't actually require you to change your heart. (laughs) You get this righteousness through chia seeds and avocados and blueberries. And most people will pay extra for food if it gives us the feeling of smug righteousness. It's called whole foods. You pay a little extra for the righteousness that comes with the food. And it feels like it's worth it. But Jesus, Jesus laughs too. He says, it's not what goes into your mouth that makes you righteous. It's what's in your heart. Jesus alone can make you righteous. But the God of gluttony lies to us. And then it becomes tyrannical. Food is God's good gift, but it is a terrible God. And that's the problem of gluttony. So let me now transition to the problem of lust. And what I want to do is I want to set this conversation up through lust's connection to gluttony. So gluttony or its idol of making God unnecessary through refuge and through righteousness, gluttony could be described as the world's first sin. 
right? If you can remember Genesis chapter 3, Adam and Eve were in the garden. And God makes them, provide for them this exquisite banquet. And God tells them, enjoy all things. Like, have at it. Delight in it. But, like, please, just, just stay away from this one tree. Y'all remember that? Right? And through the ruse of a serpent, Adam and Eve believed a lie. And do you remember the way that it's described in Genesis 3? In verse 6, the text says, So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes, she took of its fruit and ate. The sight of the fruit did something in her imagination, and that's the connection to lust. The story of lust par excellence in the whole Bible is the story of David and Bathsheba, right, in 2 Samuel chapter 11. Let me read verse 2. This is what it says, and listen for it. It happened late one afternoon when David arose from his couch and was walking on the roof of the king's house that he saw from the roof a woman bathing and that the woman was very beautiful. A delight to the eyes. Take and eat, David, he thought. (laughs) That word saw, it's the same word in the Hebrew. There's this gazing and this dwelling with their eyes and then into their imaginations. It's like, it's no surprise that Satan, when he's trying to tempt Jesus in the desert, would take him to a high mountain so that he, he could see the kingdoms of the world and offer them to Jesus. David inquires, he dwells upon, and he takes her body as if it belonged to him. And then Bathsheba leaves. Why? Because he was done with her. And like, you know how the story ends. David goes into this deep, dark hole of lying and cover-ups. He ends up in a web that he cannot escape, all for the pleasure of sex. Sex is a good thing and a gift from God, but it is not the greatest thing, and it should not be so high on the hierarchy. Frederick Frederick Buechner again, he says, sex is like nitroglycerin. You can blow up bridges with it, and you can heal hearts with it. And we all feel both sides. But here... And most of the time, we just see bridges being blown up. It moved to the highest position in David's heart, and it enslaved him, and it ruled him. And he began to feel like he needed it above all other things. His false God controlled him and mastered him. Because that's what lust does. It separates intimacy from relationship, right? Like loneliness and emptiness, which, which lust promises to fulfill, it only exacerbates our shame and our, our sense of failure. Lust promises to ease the pain, but it makes it worse. It's driving the problem deeper. See, sexual intimacy is supposed to be this life-uniting act 
this healing act meant to make people open and trusting and safe and vulnerable and loved. Lust takes that and makes makes us instead untrusting, invulnerable, despairing to even be loved with real intimacy. It hardens us, which is the opposite of what sex was designed to do. It takes good gifts and turns it into a very bad God. And by cutting ties between the act and intimacy, lust looks only to its own selfish fulfillment. See, when we indulge and prioritize our lust with our browser histories, we're actually shortcutting that good desire in our hearts to know and to be known. You know, the last thing that lust wants is to truly know someone. Rebecca DeYoung in her book, she asked the question, why do exotic dancers not use their real, their real names? I mean, why do they use stage names? Listen to the response. It's because lust dehumanizes the other. In fact, lust needs to dehumanize the other. Lust does not work when the other person is fully human. A man leering at an exotic dancer does not want to know her real name. A great way to empty out all of these strip clubs, these clubs, would be to stand up before a dancer actually comes on and say, here we have Sultry Susan, but her real name is Mary Valinsky. She has four brothers and sisters. Her parents are divorced when they were five. Her mother's an alcoholic, and she's been married twice. And her last husband beat her. She has two kids and is struggling to get by. She likes dogs, and she would love to be a dental hygienist someday and would still very much like to be loved. That would empty the room. Sexual pleasure is supposed to be life-uniting for people whose lives are united financially and emotionally and spiritually. But if you take it out of that context, you, you turn it into a lie. You say, I don't, I don't want to be one with you in any of these other ways in my life, but I do want to be with you, one with you in that way. It professes an intimacy that we're not willing to embrace, and that is what makes it so destructive. And that's why the biblical limits on sexual pleasure are for only a marriage relationship that is fully united in all of these other ways. Listen, the Bible is not prudish or squeamish about sex, but it does understand that how you treat your body will determine the state of your soul. If you have a beautiful vase in your house, you don't use it to hold toilet brushes, right? Not because you're prudish about vases, but because you think vases are awesome. The biblical limits are communicating to us how precious, but also how devastating this particular craving, this disordered love can be. 
Our lust is an enemy to everything that we desperately want and need. It promises us joy, commitment, fulfillment. But listen, you guys, it is a bait and switch. Sexual pleasure is a good gift, but it is a terrible God. It will enslave you. And it's even known to make ordinary people and turn them into predators. It will ultimately hurt you and make you, f- be, make you filled with resentment towards intimacy. It'll make you even frigid and isolated and riddled with shame. And I don't want that for you. And that's the problem of lust. So I've gone very long today. Um, I don't want to leave us here. So if you'll allow me just to use my conclusion to finish with some solutions to both gluttony and lust. As I began, you know, I've said that the church's answer to gluttony and sexual sin is usually not very good, right? It's uh, usually they, we start with the law, right? We say things like, you should be ashamed at what you're looking at. As if we're not already ashamed and as if that's not why we're eating what we're eating or looking at what we're looking at. It's shame, man. Or our, our solutions just like rely on like white knuckling it on our willpower. As if the Bible has any impressive confidence in our willpower. It does not. These kinds of things don't change people, but because what is broken in us is not just a little bit of bad behavior. It's the worship of our hearts. Our love and hope must be ordered correctly. And so to do that, we have to uncover some lies. And so I've tried to think through a few of them. I've I've found four for us. Here's the first one. We've got to uncover the lie that our bodies are our own. I mean, this is why Paul ends 1 Corinthians 6 by saying, you are not your own. You don't belong to yourself. You were bought with a price. And I don't know if there is anything in our modern culture that we don't want to believe more than that. And we hear it all the time, right? My body, my choice. And that's actually a philosophy that we've bought into. But here's the deal, because it's a lie. Everyone, no matter what your political persuasion is, everyone has a master. And what you do sexually or what you feed your body is bowing either to a good God or to a slave master, a tyrant. But in either case, We can't say mine about anything, and especially not our bodies. They belong to one master or another. Christian, you belong to God. You hear that? Here's another one. You have to uncover the lie that whether indulging in food or controlling it, or sexual pleasure, you have to uncover the lie that those things will actually fill us up. 
You have to be absolutely convinced that enough will never be enough. You were not designed to be filled and satisfied by any earthly craving. Your heart is hardwired to find rest only in the arms of your Savior. And it's for this reason you can actually be hungry and full at the same time. It's it's for this reason you can actually be celibate and satisfied at the same time. Because food and sex are only signposts to the soul satisfaction that is on offer to you in Christ. Here's another one. You have to uncover the lie that you can do this by yourself. Like if you struggle with eating disorders or sexual addiction or drinking, like please talk to a friend and see a counselor or a therapist. Do both of those things. I mean, our deacons here at Denver Press literally have an entire fund set up to help you with these things. It is not unspiritual to seek professional help, like subject matter specialists. These things, our brokenness is so deep, it's, they're so complex. And if I've made them sound simple, I'm sorry. These things are so complex. Eating disorders and sexual addiction are real because it is a revenge of an idol. It is the revenge of a false god that is angry. And you'll need help. So please don't fight alone. You'll need professionals and friends to get help with this. Fight through that shame. Don't be. Lastly, it's related. You have to. You have to uncover the lie that God is ashamed of you. The God who knows you fully inside and out. The God who knew every sin that you would ever commit, even the ones you have not yet committed. He looked at all of your addiction and brokenness and he said, mine. Jesus knew the deep, dark holes in which we find ourselves and still he had no greater joy than to give his life for you. God is not ashamed of you. That shame is a false God lying to you. And as you uncover these lies, and I hope you do, you're gonna have to fill them with pleasure. And let me explain what I mean. You can't just hope to want things less or to like a different set of things. You can't just like tell yourself to like different things. Because with that logic, you know, the logic that if you do, it'll just keep you from sin. You know, like for instance, the sin of eating too much. If you just uh, like kale, right? Like who's tempted to eat too much kale, Right? It won't work. No, the, 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 the path forward is not that. It's, it it is, a, is a deeper pleasure. And what do I mean by that? In um, Dante's uh, The Divine Comedy, he's finally like getting through purgatory. I know it's bad theology. Just follow the metaphor here. Um, he, he's, he's asking Virgil for a, a guide. And, and Virgil's final 
words to him are these. Make pleasure now thy guide. Make pleasure now thy guide. See, when we are restored to real humanness and wholeness, what brings us ultimate pleasure is God himself. Right? I mean, this is why St. Augustine would say we're, we're restless until we rest in him. And so what thrills and delights and pleases us also will please God for he created us. And we're just following signposts all, all the way to the divine life. Christians must see life, death, and the resurrection of Jesus as the pathway to the fullness of life and utter delight. And we bask in this love affair with the God of, of the universe. Our abuse of our bodies and our stomachs, they are all healed at the cross. And this is what we are experiencing in our communion with Jesus and as we participate in communion at Jesus' table. You know, there's a survey taken about which words we desire to be told by someone else. And, there were, and the first thing, the first thing that we would, we would most like to be told is, I love you. Jesus is not ashamed of you. He's not ashamed of you. He invites you to his table. Why? Because he loves you and he wants to be with you. He doesn't think you're gross. You know, the second thing that we would most like to be told from someone else is what? I forgive you. Jesus does not hold your struggles against you. He made a way as his body was broken and his blood was poured out so that the love affair between God and us remains intact for eternity. And the third thing that we would most like to be told by someone else and this one was a little bit less intuitive, but now it makes all the sense in the world. It's this, supper is ready. Isn't that sweet? Enjoy your relationship. I know that we abuse our body because of lust, but Jesus' body was broken, and now it is served to us spiritually through bread and wine. And I know that we abuse food because of gluttony, and the banquet of Jesus, his, his food, his spiritual food heals us. And so Jesus says, I love you. I forgive you. Supper is ready. Let pleasure now be thy guide. Through his body, our soul is being healed. Isn't that beautiful? It is. May your hearts dare to believe it. Amen. Amen.